The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. and welcome to the very first edition of Gone by Lunchtime, the spin-off politics podcast. We are coming to you direct from the spin-off pod hub, high up in the internet cloud somewhere above Brito Mart in Auckland City. My name is Toby Manhoe and this is the first of what I hope will become a monthly podcast on all things political. I'm very happy to be joined for our first instalment by the box office pairing of Annabelle Lee and Ben Thomas, to discuss, among other things, the kerfuffle around John Key attending Waitangi commemorations, the TPP squabble, and the Carnival of State of the Nation speeches from the main party leaders. Annabel Lee is a journalist and commentator and was executive producer of Māori TV's Native Affairs when that show was in its prime. How are you, Annabel? I'm oh. sorry I persuaded you to come in to take part with the offer of some home baking, but um, owing to a burst pipe, that wasn't possible. We have some Afghans out of a packet here. Beautiful. Thank you for the Afghans. If you'd said I had to walk up three stories to get here, though, I probably wouldn't Never have come to be that, honest that piece with you. Of How have you been? What have you been up to lately? Very well. Nothing much. I've been at home with my um, with my new daughter. She's three months old mm. and just setting up our new program, which is being produced by Great Southern Television called The Hui, mm. which will soon appear on TV3 on Sunday morning, starting April 3rd. Free. And is that getting, getting, getting the old team back together? Because Mihi, Mihi Forbes is there. Yes, Mihi Ngārangi Forbes is joining us and Adrian Stevenon, who was um, the Native Affairs Associate Producer, so yeah. That would be very good. Um, maybe you should do something on Kohanga Reo. That would be interesting. Well, that sounds like a good yeah, idea, Toby. We might do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks also for the Also with us is Ben Thomas, who previously worked for Senior National Minister Chris Finlayson, then fled overseas, I think, and has now returned to work for... PR man Matthew Hooten, which means he swapped working for someone who speaks mostly in Latin for working for someone who speaks mostly in furious diatribes. Is that about <laughs> accurate, Ben? Highly unfair. Um, I'll, I'll be mounting a spirited defence of Matthew on my first column for public address. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to that. Um, uh, the obvious starting point really is Waitangi, John Key, the TPP, it's all kind of came together in a big ball of tangled up dust um, there was a lot of toing and froing about whether the Prime Minister would be invited by Ngāpui onto Te Te Marae, he was blocked then he was invited, he wasn't going to be allowed to speak. Annabelle, how do you see this all playing out? Is it the same as we've seen in previous years or is there something different this time round? Um, well it's an, it's an interesting one because it's actually polarising te ao Māori you, can, um, you know, some are saying you know, he should be banned like Kingi Taurua who's a very well known um, Ngāpuhi leader and sort of instigated this whole debate about whether or not 
key should be allowed on and then of course the other camper yeah. are saying um, of course he should come and the marae is, a, is the perfect place to be debating these ideas and to be able to confront him and challenge him on his support for TPPA. I understand that um, earlier this week there was a, a hui of um, the various different hapu from Ngāpuhi. The majority voted um, to ban him from the marae. Mm. Um, a few hours later the, the, the trust that actually runs the marae got together and decided to overturn the decision of the hui, so it's you know it's an it's an issue that's definitely polarising within um, within Te Ao Māori, and there's nothing new about that. Do you think that John Key is going to end up speaking on the marae, Ben? So what he said after the week of back and forth is that he'll go to the marae if he's invited, but he won't force his way in. Mm. Um, talking about safety of staff, mm. you know, um, and 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 this 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 is business as usual at TT. Um, the first time I went to Waitangi as part of the Crown Party, um, I think we left after about sort of you know ten minutes into the pofiri. Um There's always a certain level of fraction, um, fractiousness, dissent, protest, um, and and you adjust to the circumstances. You know you don't you don't want to sort of be too dismissive of the day and you know the day before Waitangi and its significance being welcome onto the lower marae, uh, but at the same time it is a bit of a media set piece for whatever the protest du jour is. Mm. Um, it, you know it really is it's a bit like um, Jarhead's depiction of war. You know, prior to the Prime Minister arriving, protesters are standing on one side of the Marae Gate, uh, the Crown Party will stand on the other side, media are across the road, everyone's just having a cigarette, kind of chatting, waiting, the Prime Minister will pull up as soon as he gets out of the car, cameras go on, protesters start jostling, shouting, holding up placards, the Crown Party sort of forces its way in, you know, amidst a great rancour, um, and then, you know, at some point during the pofiri, they'll be rushed out. Um, and at that point, the cameras turn off, they've got their footage, and everyone goes back to us enjoying the weekend. It's going to be a big one, I think. It's being predicted by you know people in the north that this will probably the, be the biggest protest that um, we've seen at Waitangi in quite a long time. You know, Māori get very um, passionate about these you know issues that impact on our constitutional rights. So. There will definitely be argy-bargy and the, I think the Prime Minister would be wise not to underestimate the strength of feeling up there. There was an offer um, that was made this morning and we're, we're speaking on, on Wednesday evening now um, by Honya Haruera saying that rather than speaking on the marae he should come and speak at the political forum but that sounded to my ears a bit like an ambush offer because it was he could come and speak... Um, on very specific terms, um, as required, you can sort of imagine on kind of saying, "Okay, yeah. you now have two minutes to speak, Prime Minister." If, if I mean, everyone was, gets equal time, that was, that was then we're hearing watch, from Jane it, Kelsey, Calvin Jones. I mean, do, do do you think that he will speak on the marae? Do you, do you have a sense of that? I think he will definitely um, speak on the marae. My understanding is that he'd been instructed not to discuss. Um, the TPP. Uh-huh. The, the political forum is something that happens up there every year and it's actually a really um, interesting forum and you know Ben was talking before about the whole um, media circus that is Waitangi but th- there's actually a lot of really constructive interesting things that happen up there too so I would strongly encourage the PM to go mm. and mm. address the political forum. Well certainly the agenda has been set hasn't it by the very fact of having the signing of the TPP in Auckland on February 4, mm. the day before 
February 5, which is the day before the Treaty of Waitangi anniversary, which is when he goes to the Marae. Mm. I mean, that sets the tone, doesn't it? So it's sort of, it sort of diff- seems to be in some ways difficult for the Prime Minister to hold up his hands and say, we didn't ask for any of this, when clearly that was setting the tone by, by doing that signing. Look, and at the same time, it's mana from heaven for uh, people like Jane Kelsey, Carwin Jones, who have really been agitating about this and feeding a lot of misinformation about the TPP, which is partially why I think you've got tempers running so hot. Um, you know, this is, this is ideal timing for the protest groups. I think we heard today that sort of 15,000 people were expected up at Waitangi from Auckland. I, I think that's probably an overestimation, but I certainly think it'll be the biggest protest up there in recent times. It's Don't quite a provocative mood, move, <laughs> isn't it, to like have this signing so close to to our Waitangi Day celebrations. I agree, and it's uh, I'm not sure what if that's something that's been done on purpose or an oversight, but. It, to me, it just seems like a death wish because it just means that Waitangi this year is going to be all on. The, and I the, don't know if that's really what the sort of um, images that you want on the television the year before an election. The, the amount of the amount of coordination and planning needed to you know get that many sort of dignitaries there, and you know, I, I think precludes um, the idea that it's just a political tactic. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think there's any interest that the government has in having protests on the street, you know, mm. prior to the national day. You know, Ke, look, Key undertook when he was in opposition that he would visit the Lower Marae every year, and he's stuck by that, and he, he's 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 doing it again this year. Um, and I actually see it as a very promising sign that he's so adamant about going and selling the TPP to the people of New Zealand. I think one of the one of the real downsides I think sort of recently for the national government has been that Key, who's you know one of the best political communicators of his generation, you know, and now I'm talking in the Western world, not just in New Zealand, actually hasn't felt the need to go out and retail and convince people of, of what he's doing um, because he's been writing on the, TP the specific, TPP specifically in, in or general, more generally in general and I think the fact that he's really sort of resolved um, resolved to go around the country to do these road shows and to go into you know what really is the sort of the teeth of the storm up there um, to try and com- to try and you know show people why he's done this um, and, and 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 why they don't need to be alarmed I agree with most of that, I think it's really positive that there is a commitment to go to Waitangi mm. and to go just about whatever may come. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not unconditional. Mm. But at the same time, I do think it's hard to see. Although I, I go along with you, your kind of Occam's razor analysis of the the timing of the signing. All the same, they knew very well when going along with the February fourth signing to hold it at Sky City as well, which is yeah, a symbol yeah. of all sorts of things. But it does seem like a bit of a fuck you. you well, know? it's 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 only provocative if you think that the TPP itself is a slap in the face for Maori, and it's not. Um, the, but Maori think that it's a slap in the face that, to Maori, that, and that and that's the difference. That, that's right, and that's because of really quite disingenuous. Um, Stances from people like Jane Kelsey. Um, I, you know, I, I actually think, I actually think the, you know, without wanting to be rude about it, the, the kind of far left um, missed a real opportunity here, in that, you know, they, they 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 agitated. They got quite a quite a kind of you know mass movement going, you know, opposing the sort of 
the worst re- the worst possible outcomes of the TPP. You know, um, disestablishing Pharmac, um, you know, huge IP protections, um, and you know, disregarding the treaty. Now they actually won on all those points. And I would have thought that what you'd do as a responsible movement leader or public figure would be to say to the people who have been following you to this point, hey, guys, we won. You know, this is a demonstration of people power. You know, the, the, the negotiators for New Zealand did actually need people in the streets protesting about Farmac in order to be able to make that case convincingly to the other parties in the agreement. So this is a win for Kelsey et al, but for some reason they're determined to see it as a continuing loss and a continuing grievance. And, and they've stooped to pretty low levels of disinformation to actually make that case. Regardless of whatever the detail may be, whether there are any possible wins for Māori, although I think the vast majority would say they don't, particularly when it comes to the issues around medicine and so forth. Māori have not been genuinely consultated about this issue. And the thing is, like, when you Pākehā guys get us to sign little, like, treaties and, and contracts and stuff around, like, February, um, sort of history shows that it usually doesn't work out that great for us so of course there's a high level of suspicion and you know Māori really buy into these big constitutional issues it's something that Māori get very hot under the collar about if there's a perceived um, diminishing of our constitutional rights like the foreshore and seabed Māori get mobilised about it and so but but when you actually read Carwin Jones's um, and, and Jane Kelsey's analysis of what the TPP means for Māori and why it breaches treaty principles according to them. It's actually a very thin piece of work. It's not the sort of thing that you'd expect from you know, a, a couple of PhDs. Um, it, it basically it, it, it focuses mainly on the fact that they weren't consulted sufficiently beforehand, which again is arguable. You know, the, the MFAT did a huge amount of consultation with groups like the Federation of Māori Authorities, with individual iwi. Um, I remember an instance in Parliament last year where uh, Mika Faitari, the Labour MP, uh, who's Kahanunu, um, grilled my former boss, Chris Finlayson, in Parliament about why there hadn't been enough consultation, why, why Māori hadn't been consulted over the TPP. And he read back to her the minutes of one of the consultation meetings where in attendance was Mecca Faitari. Um, you know, there seems to be a lot of sort of willful misremembering of uh, the process that's actually gone through to this point. But saying you've consulted with Māori because you've had a meeting or two with FOMA is a bit like saying you've consulted with New Zealanders because you've met with the Business Roundtable. I yeah. think that most Māori would feel that it's not adequate um, consultation. I mean, an example is in terms of the TPP porphyry, you know, the government has been um, looking around Auckland for a mana whenua group that will dial, perform... Dialled the, every number in the phone. Dial, and, and no one is answering except um, the Ngāti Whātua runanga. What's interesting about that is that both Ngāti Whātua hapu, um, Ngāti Whātua o Orake and Ngāti Whātua o Kaipara have both said, no, we're not, we're not taking part in this porphyry, but mm. the runanga, which is essentially its administrative body or its governance body has said that they will tamiterangi um, and Nader Glavish are rallying a group of three or four I don't know if you could really describe that as a porphyry and they're going ahead and I think Māori feel the same way about FOMA even though FOMA knows nothing really about what's in TP they've given it their seal of approval and Māori are saying hold up that's it's not okay. We we haven't and the, you, and the, and you don't speak on behalf of us. And the perception seems to be that 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 hey, guys, you can't simply say, don't worry, we've got an exemption. Look, there's an exemption, to, and then say that that covers it all, because obviously it is more complicated than that. Like one of the arguments that I think is interesting is that it does create a chilling effect, because 
nation states are reluctant to use the exemptions that, and and so so the very fact of the exemption doesn't per se you know i mean there are there are there are i, I think that's an extraordinary argument for um for a victoria university um law professor really? to advance really? a- absolutely the 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 idea that the that the absence of an exemption would mean that the government was intent on screwing over Māori, and also the presence of an exemption means that they're intent on screwing over Māori, is this weird, you know, upside-down logic um, that, you know, just can't, can't be sustained. You know, he, here we're asking, you know, Jane Kelsey and, and Carwin Jones are asking us to trust them not as legal experts here, but as humans of student psychology, uh, students of human psychology. Um, you know, them just making speculative guesses about how politicians might act, and I just don't understand it. So, for instance, you know, when you think about these exclusions, um, or, or you know, what the chilling effect might be, I, I actually can't think of what it might be, except you know, uh, say an American company starts a subsidiary, but uh, you know, creates a, a methanol factory in the Taranaki. Um, and then the Crown uh, wishes to nationalise that and then give it to Māori as part of a treaty settlement. Now, you know, that, that doesn't sound like something that will happen, um, but that's the sort of thing that would kick in, you know, the investor dispute resolution clauses where you might have to try and rely on an exception. I guess, I guess then it comes back to the consultation thing, you know? I mean, that sounds quite persuasive when you explain that. But, 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 but I, I, I mean, what I, what, I, what I think is unreasonable is to dismiss, and this has been the case all through the process, and I speak as an absolute TPP fence-sitter. I remain ambivalent about the whole thing. I think, personally, at one level, it, it's, a, it's just crazy for us not to be in it. You know, for a country like New Zealand not to be in a deal like that would be mad. But on the other hand, I think that the process from the start was it's not just the secrecy thing because it's kind of oh no we always do it in secret it's the it's the approach it's the you talked about communication before but tim grosser who whether or not he is the the kind of boy genius of international trade negotiation or not created an atmosphere whereas it was where where there was a constant condescension to anyone who raised claims and that's notwithstanding whether or not you want to sit alongside jane kelsey on every item of criticism you know What's been interesting for me is how um, rangatahi have really cottoned on to the whole TPP issue. Like, my 16-year-old seems to know an extraordinary amount of stuff about it that I have no idea about. And I think there's been some uh, really interesting use of social media that's had really strong cut through with um, rangatahi Māori on this issue, which is interesting. And kind of cool too that our kids are so politicised and interested in an issue like this. I, I look, I absolutely agree. I think anything that gets up engagement, you know, amongst young people, amongst middle-aged people, is a good thing. Um, but what I what I think is that people tend to over and underestimate the threats to what they hold important. Um, so, for instance, the TPP is currently vastly overestimated as a threat to, um, say, Pharmac, whereas people ignore the fact that the Labour Party, Andrew Little, um, you know, started making, deci- you know, make, making promises that the government would direct Pharmac to, to um, fund whatever, you know, the melanoma wonder drug of, of choice mm. that he had read a story on stuff.co.nz, almost <coughs> certainly planted by a big pharma PR company. Um, you know, which actually undermines the Pharmac model much more than Tim Grosser has ever done. I mean, you know, 
at the risk of incurring the wrath of the New Zealand internet, St John Campbell has done more in his career to undermine Pharmac by running these sort of you know Be victim careful, of the ben, week stories you talk about, about people who need have to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't have people staring at John Campbell. <laughs> his, 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 his former role as sort of unofficial final appeals body for the Pharmac decision makers, um, as you know, as soon as PR companies got involved, you know, and and so I think I think this this mistrust of Tim Grosser of the New Zealand government about what they might do is totally out of whack with what has actually happened in terms of threats to these things. That well, we're I do, I do. It would just be nice if they consulted us as yeah, much about TPP as they do about the flag. I suppose the only other That'd thing, chimes nice. slightly with that, is that it did seem to... I was you only want 42 was, people to turn up. <laughs> I was amazed to see that there was a petition signed by lots of people who presented at Government House calling on the Governor-General to um, refuse to sign... Uh, any legislation, which 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 did actually strike me is that if were that to happen, that would be a far graver constitutional crisis than could ever <laughs> ever, ever be affected by yep. by a document like the TPP. What's going to be interesting about the TPP, just in terms of the Maori political world, is the knock-on effect. I think for the Maori Party, because you know the Maori Party yep. was a party founded on an issue about, you know, the diminishing of constitutional rights and Tariana walked the floor, left Labour, turned her back and set up the party and so, you know, Te Ururua and Marama have been very, very quiet on this and they risk incurring the wrath. They've opposed, but yes, they've been but quiet. Yes, but they're doing the, they? they're quiet and they're the like, oh look, they're not yeah. really talking to us about yeah. it. Well, we've had that whole narrative for years and years and years about being on the kids, yeah. on the on the at the table but then on this one they're saying no well you kind of need to push your way to the to the front of the line and advocate for Māori because this is one that could come back to haunt them I think. Um, just before we leave Waitangi Day for the moment um, that we've had this the an absolute perennial is um, starting kind of earlier in the year than ever is Waitangi Day is such a such a kerfuffle why can't we have a day more like Australia Day. So just I'd be very briefly interested to hear whether either of you goes along with that. The, the lines in one of the pieces I read was, where are the parades? Where are the celebrations? Why can't we be more like Australia Day? Which makes me immediately think, I'm answering my own question, of Mitchell Pierce pissing on a, sh- on a sofa. But, um, <laughs> but I'd be interested to know whether either of you wants to see more kind of harbour fireworks and rah-rah. I think people who say that have obviously never been to Waitangi because there's all sorts of awesome, amazing, cool kaupapa that happen at Waitangi. There's the whole waka thing, there's awesome stuff with the kids, there's kapahaka, there's a political forum. It is a day of celebration and it's a day of protest and it's great that it is both of those things. And thank God we live in a country where we can exercise our democratic right to kick up a stink and shake our Prime Minister and give him a little bit of biffo and all of that stuff. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, but... Um, I don't think we should be afraid of Waitangi protests. I think that's a sign that we're living in a you know a healthy democratic country. No, yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of policing that goes on in the commentariat and at large about you know what's the proper way to respect Anzac Day, what's the proper way to celebrate Waitangi Day, and you know the best thing about National Days is that they give people a chance to sort of reflect on where they see themselves sitting in the country. Um, someone once said to me, you know, the definition of a New Zealander is someone who takes part in the discussion about what it means to be a New Zealander. And I I think sort of Waitangi Day really sums up the sort of ambiguous nature of our nationhood, Mm. Um, but in a good way. 
Well, that's good. We've solved that. Um, I'm up for fireworks, though, Toby, to be fair. <laughs> if somebody more, more wants fireworks. to do Toby, um, fireworks off the Harbour Bridge, I'm up for that. We'll, um, we'll text Kim.com and see what we can do. Cool. Um, we're going to move to talk about the State of the Nation speeches now, but before before we do it, uh, you can, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us on the spin-off TV or at the spin-off TV. Um, and if you have any complaints, you should text Radio Live on 3920 <laughs> or News Talk ZB on 9292. Um, Peter Dunn, the one-man United Future Party, lashed out at the farce euphemistically and overly grandiosely referred to as State of the Nation addresses, which are, he went on, increasingly like the strutting bellowing of boxes at the weigh-in or a pre-Big Bash team rant full of ritual chest-thumping and knuckle-dragging behaviour and which is symptomatic of loud, populist, shouting sports channel approach to politics. Uh, leaving to one side the slightly grandiose uh, words that he chose to, to, to denounce the State of the Nation uh, addresses, Does, do people think he's got a point? It's now, it's now become a kind of yearly staple that we begin the year with State of the Nation addresses from all the main parties. Is that, is that, is that a helpful uh, unveiling of the, the year, or is it a bit of a sideshow? I, I thought they were quite good this year. Um, you know, I, th- I thought there was quite a lot for people to kind of get their teeth into and to think about. Um, obviously, you don't get that every year. Generally, they are pretty bland. And it's, I think it's because of that whole state of the nation uh, mm. kind of appellation, mm. um, which, you know, is, is, is a little ridiculous. I think the Greens seem to have scaled down from the state of the planet, which they used to deliver. <laughs> That's right. yep. every, every, every. <laughs> well, you've, got, you've got to try and you know, contain your, 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 your project, really. Yeah. Right. Man- manage expectations. Yes, That's, That's it. Um, it's the funnest thing that he said in ages. I like it. And I think he's spot on. It's very American, isn't it? You, you can sort of see the Americanisation of New Zealand politics. It's like how we refer to our prime ministers as prime ministers elect now. Right. right? We didn't used to do that back in the day, but we do now. And I think, yeah, the State of the Nation stuff is is um, just another part of that. And um, I have to say, I found them all incredibly boring. All of I'm them sorry. quite boring. Right. Very boring. I, I was interested because there was a focus on policy. And, and that's something that we've probably been missing mm. um, in the electorate in general recently, uh, definitely last year, I think. Yeah, there was a clear policy centrepiece to each of them that, yeah. was, that was signposted to the media. I mean, if you, if, you, if, you, if you actually read the speeches, as I think most of us in the room have for our sins done, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, in all of them, pick out what the main policy plank was. Maybe not in Keys, maybe maybe not in Peters, but but the but the for national to start off with them, the, John Key gave a speech, and it's always telling what their audience or, or or context is to the Auckland Chamber of Commerce, and the main headline there was bringing forward the central rail link, uh, along with some road money for an east-west um, connection in Auckland and some regional highways. So that that was sort of balanced out a little bit um, one thing that struck me I don't know if we want to talk about the CRL too much but one, one thing that struck me um, Ben as someone who used to did you write speeches I presume from time to time no, like no, now and then yeah. one of the things that struck me is that it really wasn't he used talked about vision in the speech and he said talked about big ideas and sort of insisted that they were still as full of ideas as ever uh, I think he said eight years in where my yeah, ministers yeah. are as full of ideas as they ever were which um, sounded a bit protesting too much from me, mm. but on the on the on the kind of you know like I sort of is it only media really that want charisma and kind of 
you know, ideological vision or whatever, because he, he doesn't deliver that, and no one and no one minds really. J- J- John Key is the boss who brings thirty cans of Lion Red on a Friday afternoon to the building site. You know, and and I, I, mean, mm. I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. yeah, his 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 persona is not larger than life. You know, you can't imagine him saying the sorts of things that Peter Dunn will sort of you know puff up and come out with. Um, you but know, surely he, people have written those into speeches before, and he's probably ruled them out because he wouldn't talk like that. Do you think? Uh, I, well, he's had a very close team since he entered politics, sure. and there are people who know him very well and 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 know how he speaks. You know, yeah. get, getting the voice of the person yeah. that you're working for is very important, and his team are very good at that. Um, you know, it would just sound strange if he, you know, and and, and different different political cultures have different. You know different approaches to this, but in in New Zealand you don't you don't really ever see that. You know Helen Clark yeah. wasn't a big sort of picture painter either. You David know, Cunliffe did his best, and well, yeah, and and I, th- I think that's sort of <laughs> that kind of that kind of shows where that sort of gets you in New Zealand. I think. How did um, how did the key speech work for you, Annabelle? Oh, I have to be honest. I found it incredibly boring, and it just felt like one big roadmap of New Zealand. We're going to build a road here, going to build a road there, another road there, going to fix SIFs, and then build another road here and there and there. I found it. I'd be surprised if it um, resonated with a lot of New Zealanders, unless they work for Transit New Zealand or they really care about the local bridge, which to be fair, many do. But yeah, to me, it didn't seem like there was um, a whole lot in it that would really turn people on. Except that I always kind of, um, I don't have to drive very often at rush hour, but when I do, and I find myself in one of those kind of, you know, unending bloody gridlock roads in Auckland, Mm. I think this is what lots of actual real hard-working Aucklanders do every day and all the time they're sitting there thinking fucking hell I just you know and so a policy that is going to improve transport in the city I you know it was might. quite Auckland centric in that regard Auckland. wasn't it Winston called it a state of state of Auckland speech yeah. not a state of the nation yeah. speech just in terms Con- of continuing to push for the provinces just in terms of key, I think that's been his, you know, one of the things that people have really loved about him is that he is the polar opposite of Helen Clark. Like, if you'd ask Helen Clark a question about anything, it didn't matter how random or niche the issue might be, she would know every little thing, every little detail about it, and she could bore you to death for 10 minutes sort of going through it all, whereas Key's got that whole, meh, I don't know, I haven't looked at that yet. I'll get my people to check it out and get back to you kind of thing and that has really resonated with New Zealanders it's like they think if he's not too worried about it we don't need to be either and I, I think it's of, worked for him I sort of think one of his great tricks is that it's almost like there's a silent come on be reasonable before everything, this is moving away from the speeches more to answer the yeah, questions yeah. Between, before every answer and I think that, I think that is sort of the it's a, it's, you know, people hear that You know, the Prime Minister is the great reassurer um, he his his role is to yeah I I, I think you're right um, he he makes people feel better about how things are going um, and you know sometimes I think that can lapse into a certain lassitude and a certain sloppiness mm-hmm. um, if it's things that he doesn't want to discuss yeah. say like the inspector general's report about the SIS you know after the last election mm-hmm. um, but but I think yeah that's um. And then the man who wants to replace him, Andrew Little, went into his speech, um, which was on Sunday, was it? 
um, which was which was a picnic, which is normally the, the Greens approach having a picnic. He, this time he was having a picnic in Albert Park in Auckland. And he went in sort of under a little bit of a cloud with the internal squabbling about the TPP and David Shearer mm. uh, speaking out of turn. But Phil Goff had got this kind of <laughs> this kind of get out of jail free card because he wants to be Auckland mayor. But he did, in the speech, at the very least, manage to change the subject and get lots of attention with mm. what was, which was a pretty 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 big, noticeable policy, which seemed like a kind of echo of the 2005 Labour last-minute uh, interest-off interest student loans that, that Grant Robertson designed yeah. for Helen Clark. I, I, think that's, I think that's a misapprehension that a number of commentators have made, but I don't think it will have the same impact at all. But, I'm, I, but I think that was the... I mean, I, I would guess that was the inspiration for it. Yeah, but I think they misinterpreted what, uh, you know, it was meant to be tied into this future of work yes. project. Yes. So it's meant to be about, um, you know, smoothing out those difficult periods when there's technological disruption mm. and changes in society. Well, I think they tried people. to tie it into that. I don't think it actually emerged <laughs> yeah. out of that. Do you? Well... well <laughs> You know, we we, we we can't look. If if it probably sprung fully formed from the mind of the future of work uh, spokesperson uh, Grant Robertson, who also came up with the interest-free student loans yeah. policy. Yeah. Um, but but as a as a political and electoral tool, it's much much blunter um, and and won't work as well because it only targets those um, who are yet to do uh, tertiary education, most of whom are not voting age and won't be voting age uh, until the policy is in place. Yeah. Um, whereas the beauty of the student loans scheme was that people who had finished their study yeah. one year previously yep. um, thought, I need to vote for this. You know, they went to the calculator, they worked out the tens of thousands of dollars yeah. they would save as a lump sum as a present from Helen Clark. Moreover, they'd seen their student loan creeping up. I that, remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. a terrible thing to watch when mm, you've never yeah. encountered that before in your life, you know. Yeah, whereas whereas this, this this one I think actually alienates rather than co-opts those former students. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. But it also but but parents is a big thing too. I mean, I've got a, I've got a six year old. You've got a six year old Annabelle, and I think they're the ones that are going to get the full. Um, uh, to repeat a joke, it's like, what do we want free education? When do when do we want it in about ten years? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but 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 I mean, how did how did how did how did how did you receive it? How did your sixteen year old receive it? Did did I haven't actually talked about it with my sixteen year old? I was excited because you know I had a huge student loan myself, and before mm. Labor brought in that policy, you know, you just watch the interest creeping up and up, and if my kids can avoid getting caught in that trap, I think it's a, a good thing. My understanding is that it was a it was a mana internet policy, wasn't it? Uh, that's Lila what Harry's Stephen Joyce claiming said. credit for. And Lila Harry did too, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Lila um, Harry and Stephen Joyce joined uh, as ever. The hip. <laughs> I, I'm, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for free education. I think it's a good thing. I think it was, you know, a People are talking about it. It's got traction. It's sort of, like you say, um, distracted from some of Labor's internal bitching, which is helpful. But then I saw Little get interviewed on on the Paul Henry show, and um, mm. it just felt like he snatched um, defeat from the jaws of victory. Oh. He got really caught in the whole, you know, it's about this tidal wave of change that's coming, and we've got it. And he just repeated that right. over and over, and you know. 
he struggled really, to join the dots. He really did, and Henry was able to. No, yeah, yeah, he was able to sort of get him right in the yeah. corner about it and yeah. say, "Well, what about these people that you know have already paid for their education? What are you doing for them?" And he's like, "Well, this is just a start. We've got more coming." Yeah. So I feel like it was a good policy, but the follow-up, his follow-up around it. Um, what was weak, and now it's got you know people sort of questioning. Well, can we afford this, and I, so I, on and so forth. So, it sort of slipped a bit afterwards. I, I think. think you can tie it back to the TPP divisions in Labour, which is that I think it shows that Little doesn't have confidence to bring the left of his caucus with him. Mm. Um, so, if if you don't look at it as an attempt to win votes, because you know for the reasons. The reasons I've, I've said previously, I don't. I don't think it will be a, a big vote getter. Um, if you look at it as a way to signal to Greens supporters who used to be with Labour mm. that this is a left-wing party, then it actually makes a lot more sense. If you see it as them shoring up um, their, their their boundary against the Greens on the left, rather than making a play for the middle and national voters. It's also. I mean, it's interesting that Phil Goff, who was explicitly mentioned at the top of the speech, was. The man who I remember when I was at university, who was the devil, you know, he was the man who introduced tuition fees. So I sort of thought, does he get a does he get an exemption on this too, (laughs) like he does on the on the TPP? You know, I mean, it is it is kind of symbolically not the first. It's you know there have been various, but it's it's more kind of repudiation of the fourth Labour government that continues. And you could make an argument, which is it's too too long and tedious to make, but you could linking it to a broader. You know Jeremy Corbyn, the the the, the leftward movement of the Labour Party, which will appeal to some, and obviously is going to alienate others, like mm-hmm. Phil Goff. I don't know about where David Shearer is on this one, but you know, there's obviously a group within Caucus who will be concerned about this. I, well, no, I, I think that's right. I think that you can draw parallels with um, the Labour Party where it is right now, um, and the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. And it's not, it's not necessarily the nature of the leaders, but it's how they were installed, which is by union activists, by um, former sort of left-wing apostates who have come back, uh, you know, cloth caps in hand, ready to reclaim their party, um, who all have extremely good skills in organisation. Um, but what you see in UK Labour and New Zealand Labour is that those skills have been turned inwards. They're very inwardly focused organisations right now. They're basically fighting over, you know, it might be unkind to say the carcass of these social democratic parties, but um, they're, they're certainly a bit like vulture funds uh, swooping down on distressed assets, um, where the carve-up of the assets is actually more important than what you're doing going forward. I mean, certainly, my, my I mean, I, th- I think I think there's some truth in that. I think that the 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 kind of divisions and the ugliness that's in some internal parts of the Labour Party in Britain is is well, it may not be all peace and harmony in New Zealand Labour here. By contrast, it is it is it is um, it is very adhesive and stuck <laughs> together. Anyway, let's do let's talk about the Greens um, who you mentioned. They they went to the National Library this year, and it was. Metiri Ature, not James Shaw, the other co-leader, who was um, continuing, I guess, project, project serious. You know, project take us seriously. Project where we're a party of government, and and and, and she was quite explicit about that. She, mm. you know, almost kind of, I guess, um, disowned the tag of radical. Which um, mm. I imagine there are a lot of Green Party members 
who would who, who who may take exception to that. You know, I mean, the argument was that ideas that our ideas are dismissed as radical, but actually, look a few years down the road, and you'll see mm. all the, all the all the mainstream parties picking them up. And there's there's a fair bit of truth in that. Yeah. Uh, there are also some 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 exceptions to that, and some policies that have been <laughs> you know less heavily <laughs> emphasised. Um, but the main policy plank or the the, the centrepiece was this treasury costing unit, which was a good kind of, I guess, encapsulation of that shift, which was as if to to, to, to uh, encourage, she was going to encourage all the other parties to agree with their idea to have an independent costing unit within treasury that would cost parties manifestos and their policy promises so that everyone had an independent idea of that. Do you reckon that had John Key, by the way, poo-pooed that almost immediately? <laughs> But do you reckon that that was an effective approach from the Greens at it? I think it's a great idea, but I don't think it's going to win them any votes, simply. Um, I thought it was interesting that she drew on the whole Michael Joseph Savage story and like you yeah. said, you know, our ideas may seem radical, but, you know, a couple of years later people are pinching them and then everybody accepts that, you know, they're great ideas after all and you need to trust us to to um, to br- bring these things to fruition because at the moment you're just getting the diluted version of them because you know governments are cherry picking what they want and I think you know that was a very um, smart argument to run but in terms of the the costing unit even though I think it's a good idea I don't think it's the sort of thing that's going to have people um, you know. Jumping, joining up to the Green Party. Joining up to the Green Party. Although, yeah. interestingly, we see, you know, election after election, the Green Party is making major inroads in um, the Māori electorates. Right. So they're doing something right. How did it wash for you, Ben? Do you reckon the Treasury thing was a goer? The, the goal was just to establish them as serious-minded in the minds of the media, right? Mm. So the government does actually get quite an easy run in terms of dismissing the costliness mm. of opposition promises well, by definition, anything they do is affordable because it's happened, right? Um, and w- whereas, you know, if Labour float an idea or the Greens float an idea, we say, oh, $1.2 billion for free tertiary education exactly. for three years. Well, that, yeah. the country can't afford that. Mm. The country, of course, can afford that. Yeah. Um, it's all about prioritisation and, you know, being willing to go into a little more debt. Um, but, but, you know, when these stories uh, get reported, they, you know, they're sort of, you know, government claims that it's, it's unaffordable, that kind of thing. So in, in that sense, if just to plant in the minds of the people running these stories that actually there's nothing more incredible, yeah. you know, there's nothing more fantastical about offering three years of um, free tertiary education than there is about making the 2009 tax cuts, um, e- even if one is going to be more popular than the other and, you know, the, the electorate will obviously decide which one it wants or whether it's desirable. But, you know, we're, we're not talking sort of unicorns and griffins and chimeras mm. here. Um, and then, of course, last but not least, Winston Peters stood up at the the um, Rotary Club of Orewa, uh almost almost exactly twelve years to the day since Don Brash stood up before the Rotary Club in Orewa. and Don Brash was in the audience this time too. I was sort of across my maybe if, what if he were to be. If he were to succeed Winston as leader, that would be a new record probably in the Western world, wouldn't it, Being, having three different parties? Anyway, um, and he gave a speech that had uh, echoes of that um, famous brash speech. 
um, and he talked about one law for all, and it was. Um, and he gave a general kind of wide-ranging speech about the kind of demons at the door that were going to attack our sovereignty, which included TPP and the the new flag and immigration and foreign ownership. And then he went for the Māori Party, and he said that the concessions on the RMA were more of the separatism, carry on, uh, terrible, 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 one law for all. Was that just what we'd expect from Winston Annabelle? Oh, I am disappointed. I expect more from Winston because he's capable of more, but to me this felt like embarrassing dad dance moves like your dad you take him to a social he's got two moves Mm. in Winston's case it's beating Mm. up Asians or beating up Māori in this Mm. case he's chosen to beat up Māori in a very provocative way you know at the Audewa Rotary Club I just think he you know this is a guy who managed to steal Northland back from under um, National he's capable of so much more and I just thought oh what how boring Ben yeah, well, that's right. I think on, I, I take issue on Winston Peters' behalf that you know you would suggest he was copying Don Brash. You know, <laughs> he he would say he was on the the treaty. Uh, he was Don Brash before sure, Don a long Brash time was ago. Sure. That's yeah. right. um, Back in the Middle Ages, <laughs> yeah. yeah, before before. <laughs> um, he 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 was the Pixies. You know, yeah. Um, the what I think is interesting is that he's honed in on this particular um, treaty clause. You know, as you know, as you might describe it in the um, proposed RMA changes, mm. which give councils certain responsibilities to set out how they will um, interact with Maori in terms of resource consenting, planning, that kind of thing. Um, this is very sensible from the government. You know, there used to be a lot of flack, probably around when Winston started this, about uh, treaty clauses um, because everyone, well. You know, political nerds remember and, and lawyers remember the treaty clause in the state and enterprises legislation which is, is what which was incredibly vaguely worded it just said nothing in this act shall be inconsistent with the um, principles of the treaty of Waitangi the courts picked that up and ran with it and started expounding on what those principles were and there and there, and there has been uncertainty as a result um, since then so right-wing parties will tend to say we want to get rid of treaty clauses. You know, it's just mischief-making from the judiciary, that kind of thing. So what you've seen in recent years is that uh, this government in particular will put um, actual content in its treaty clauses. You know, the, the, the way that they respect, the, tre- the way that they give expression to the treaty partnership is actually in that legislation, is actually set out in that legislation rather than just left in there as a kind of wild card to let Sean Elias and the court of, uh, uh, Supreme Court you know, decide how that's going to be. And that's, and that's actually how the treaty partnership should work. It's a relationship between the Crown and Māori and they should negotiate that between themselves. It shouldn't actually be up to, to lawyers and in particular sort of unbearable kind of Pākehā law grads involved in social justice groups who hope to one day sort of reshape the country in their own image by by being judges. You know, the, the, the treaty itself is a political compact and this should be handled in a political fashion. It's a smart thing to do as you move into the post-settlement era too. Of course you should be consulting with iwi and trying to get them on board as you're going you know as you're going through the rma process and getting them you know to be investing themselves in these projects and not holding them up so it's a it's a smart thing i think that that it's included and i mean you kind of have to as you move into post-settlement eras and maori you know become stronger and stronger players in the economy especially in provincial places but you know 
consulting with people that have a vested interest, is it that big a deal? It happens in terms of farmers and agricultural stuff all the time, but for some reason when you mention you know, the word Māori, people suddenly get all whipped up about it. And according to Nick Smith, the Environment Minister, it was all in the bill before any concessions were agreed with the Māori Party <laughs> anyway, so it was a bit of a false target. Thank you for joining us on the first outing of Gone by Lunchtime the spin-off politics podcast. I'm not sure we'll keep that name. Let us know what you think by um, emailing us or texting Radio Live. Uh, many thanks to Annabelle Lee and Ben Thomas, far and away the most brilliant guests in the history of the spin-off politics podcast. Kia ora. Thanks also to producer Jose Barbosa, or as my mother likes to call him, Josiah Barbados, that nice one off the media show. Uh, and most importantly, thanks to you, dear listener. This has been Gone by Lunchtime. Um, talk to you in a month. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.